Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to MedHeads. Today, we have our regular guest, Marie Eisner, who's going to be talking with us on the subject of trauma. Hello, Marie. How are you? Hello. Hello. Thank you for letting me be here. Oh, it's great to have you back. So trauma. What mm. is trauma? Oh, trauma is the range. Meaning to wound, by the way. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Thank you. Thank so you. I always learn something from you. Yeah. So the Greek for the, the Greek word trauma tidzo means I wound. Oh, well, there you go. Um, so trauma very much is sort of I, you know, I'm not saying I'm wounded, but it's a it's a range of signs and symptoms um, that tend to occur when someone has experienced something that generally most of us won't have experienced. Mm. Um, there's different different types of traumas that I'll sort of go through. But um, some of the main types of traumas we see are things like um, physical assaults, um, sexual assaults, uh, natural being caught up in natural disasters, fires, um, holdups. Uh, other things can include things like repetitive bullying. Um, so there's a whole range of sim uh, a whole range of symptoms that coincide when somebody's experiencing traumas. And do we need to include in that list neglect? I mean, as a child growing up, neglect is or potentially has the ability to cause as much damage as physical or sexual abuse. So would you regard neglect as a trauma? Oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah. 100%. And how would you define neglect? Neglect is the, um, <clears throat> when I think about neglect, I'm thinking about the child's, you know, when we think about some of the core needs a, a child would have in their stages of psychosocial development mm. and the fact that a child, a child doesn't experience the presencing of a parent. So neglect could be everything from, uh, not having access to a range of healthy food options. Um, neglect could be simply not having a parent who has a repertoire of uh, emotional responses to when a child is in need of um, comfort. Uh, neglect is simply uh, the message for a lot of children who have experienced neglect is um, I don't matter. I don't I don't exist. Um, I'm, I'm not worthy. There's a whole range I'm of schemes. Yeah. yeah, a lot of schemas yeah. that can go with that. Yeah. And one of the things why, why I find particularly, um, you know, trauma and abuse in children so, so uh, challenging is that I know that such trauma just damages people when they're growing up. And you would have seen that, wouldn't you? You would have seen the damage that childhood trauma causes. Mm. In, in children who are growing up in adolescence, young adults, and or even into mature and late adulthood. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about how trauma manifests in adulthood? A lot of it we see compromised attachments. So um, there's been mm. a lot of research we know about sort of attachment theory and stuff mm. like that. You know, we've got the anxious attachments, we've got the avoidant attachments, we've got secure attachment, and we've got mm. a whole range of other ones. Um, they're the ones that we well, I tend to predominantly see mm. uh, or sometimes even disorganized attachment. But essentially what happens is that sense of um, not 
um, I see this in a lot of cases where there is no sense of self. Um, our sense of self becomes um, pivotal by the relationships we have with others. So if we have not had a sense of ever matter, you know, mattering or having an importance in someone's world, our sense of self can become incredibly um, not concrete and very, very distorted. Uh, so what tends to happen is we'll see, you know, really treacherous relationships, um, you know, in, in worst case scenarios, you know, you've got that kind of um, blowing hot and cold. Um, sometimes we see it in like a lot of the clients with, you know, borderline. Um, and I mean, another another term for people who, are, you know, have got experiences with borderline um, personality is often complex trauma. So there's been a big push to make sure that instead of the title of um, borderline personality, that it's a better understanding to understand its complex trauma. But essentially, it, it compromises our, our um, ability to relate to others in the world, it fractures relationships. And given the fact that we are social beings, um, what tends to happen is we get this legacy of fractured relationships upon fractured relationships. And then we just end up in this big mess of uh, distrusting others or indiscriminately going to others and, and not having any sense of um, knowing when to exit relationships that might be toxic, that are not, you know, in the best interests of anyone involved. So what I'm hearing is that trauma causes attachment disorder, which then causes the inability to form appropriate relationships in adulthood, which then in some ways, and it is the formation of inappropriate relationships, which then perpetuates the effect of trauma. Is, is that what I'm hearing from you? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we often see, so what will often happen is, uh, you know, there'll be a traumatic experience. Somebody then might go out and seek refuge in another relationship and mm. that one's rife with, um, you know, maybe someone comes across as, you know, initially kind of uh, charming and, and endearing and then they think, oh, great, this is different and then the same pattern sort of unfolds and then the person starts to honestly think that there's something fundamentally flawed with them. Mm. Um, and I guess the thing is every time someone has a trauma, you know, the, the side effect, one of the consequences or the experiences of trauma is that capacity to dissociate and uh, just sort of to numb out, to space out, to kind of daydream out. Um, and mm. there's a continuum in, in the experience of um, what dissociation looks like. But I guess what tends to happen is people can just shut off to their feelings. And before you know it, where they originally thought they would have exited a toxic relationship, before you know it, they're in something that is just so detrimental to them and you know heaven forbid if these people have had children it just ends mm. up in this very very toxic cycle uh, that can just be mm. extremely difficult to break out of so you've said a couple of things that, that i want to just uh, hone in on first of all let's go back to the fact that you said that there's a push to try and change the name of borderline personality disorder to complex trauma disorder and the second thing that i want to hone in on is you use the word dissociate. So in my mind, there are a number of psychiatric conditions that are associated with exposure to childhood trauma. And in my mind, they, are, they tend not to be PTSD, which tends to occur after a certain age. But, but in particular, I'm thinking about somatizing disorder, borderline personality disorder, dissociative disorders, including identity, mm. depersonalization, derealization, and dissociative amnesia and also mm. obsessive compulsive disorder. So uh, let's, let's go to the, uh, the, the, the issue of what do we call, what's the new word for borderline? First of all, my understanding of borderline 
and the original reason why it was called borderline was because it, it, it was a term used to identify patients who had mood disorder symptoms but not enough to make a diagnosis of major depressive disorder and had mm. psychotic symptoms but not enough to diagnose a, a primary psychosis or a, you know, some kind of schizophreniform disorder. So they were on the border. And so yes. that's, why we had the, that's why we developed the name borderline personality disorder. It is my understanding that that has now become a pejorative diagnostic term almost. And that's why I think there is a push to change, it, to change the diagnosis to complex trauma disorder. But not everyone on borderline has a history of trauma. That's correct. Tease that out for me. I've asked you about 16 different questions in one statement. Tease that out. <laughs> yes, look, not everyone who has got borderline personality um, look, and I have to say, um, some of the, you know, I've been doing lots of training sort of in, in EMDR and stuff like that. And I, I think it is, it's, a, it's an easily obtained diagnosis. I think we also need to realise that um, with borderline is we all have capacity to have borderline traits. We all have capacity to, to lose so our emotional regulation. Traits? What are borderline so what are the traits? traits? What, yeah, what, what so does borderline, borderline look traits, like? Okay, so borderline tends to look um, high uh, volility with emotions, um, mm -hmm. often idolising somebody one minute and then condemning them to the status of a criminal the next. Um, so it's a lot of history of really inconsistent, um, kind of troublesome relationships that have, have gone on. A lot of clients who experience borderline personality um, seek refuge in substances, um, they do other things. And like you said, you know, some people will have um, quite significant mood swings. Um, they'll, uh, they'll have kind of more transient symptoms of psychotic kind of phenomenon, but without, like you said, obtaining the actual diagnosis. Um, so they can kind of be quite, um, you know, have some really interesting ideas that people are like, mm, where's that coming from? Um, but essentially it's, it's really those uh, volatile, conflicted relationships um, sometimes it can engage, uh, people will be engaging in deliberate self-harm. Essentially, mm. it's anything that, uh, where any, there's emotional, and uh, emotional disturbance. But the best way to describe um, someone sort of with personality, like with borderline personality features, is a super fast um, V8 car with a really slow braking system. So they're charged off before you know it. And they can take a, they can go from zero to 100 on, as far as emotional um, reactions very quickly and they can take a very, very long time to then come back. And sometimes during those uh, phases of in between that, they will dissociate. Um, and mm. as I said, people can sometimes deliberately self-harm. We know lots of people will be mm. biting, burning, cutting, doing all of those sorts of things mm. just to try to yeah. have some sort of attempt to manage mood and the emotions. So why, why has a term as innocuous as borderline become disrespected or why is it now viewed as slightly pejorative? Because a lot of um, my, my experience in mental health, some people don't want to go anywhere near. They, they think that these clients are going to be incredibly um, needy. They're going to be a lot of, and I guess a lot of them are at risk. Um, a lot of, you know, through uh, misadventure, um, doing things that put themselves at high risk, 
So uh, some clinicians, some psychiatrists don't want to work with them. They just, they're like, oh no. Um, sometimes people's client caseloads don't want to incorporate too many people with borderline because of the perceived nature of them being so highly complex. You know, these are sometimes the clients who will ring up in such um, emotional chaos and want you to fix something there and then. But usually if we, if you know, as long as they're not saying that they're right at imminent risk, you call them back in 20 minutes, you know, half an hour or a couple of hours later and they've found their own sort of solution in some instances. It's just I think a lot of the, the skills for, um, for clinicians or, or mental health workers who work with this kind of uh, cohort is to be able to manage their own anxieties mm. and uh, take things back to the values that um, people with borderline personality um, sometimes need to be reorientated to because that tends to ground them, that tends to bring them back to uh, a level where they can, oh, okay, yeah, now I know where I'm going again. So I suppose it's important to emphasise that everyone has borderline traits which can come out when one is when we're feeling stressed mm. the, the the personality disorder is taken to an, a higher degree and what you're saying is, what you're saying if, if i'm hearing you right is actually the 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 pejorative nature of the word borderline it derives more so from clinicians views on treating high-risk patients than than really the general public is that what you're saying in, from my experience with, you know, in, in mental health, yeah. yes, um, yeah. you know, so, and a lot of, and it is, it is a diagnosis that's easily given. Um, it seems yeah. to be sometimes, I don't know if I should say this, but flavour of the month or something. <laughs> and it's usually the diagnosis that most people want to run from. Once they've got it, it sometimes can be very, very hard to, um, to shake off. Right. So the new vogue term for borderline is complex trauma disorder, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I have a number of issues with this. Firstly, because not everyone with borderline personality disorder has been traumatized. And secondly, you know, I think that everyone, everyone in their life can remember times in their life when they felt wounded, they've felt, they've felt their pride injured or they felt embarrassed or ashamed or, you know, something horrible has happened to them which doesn't necessarily meet the trauma threshold for post-traumatic stress disorder, but which they remember as distressing for them. And then that then feeds mm. into a diagnosis of, oh, I've got complex trauma disorder. Therefore, I mm. fear that, that, that complex trauma disorder will be overdiagnosed potentially more so than the original borderline personality disorder. What do you think? Mm. Look, the, the complex trauma tends to be the, uh, the impact of what's gone on in early years in your interpersonal relationships as you're growing up and the exposure to uh, trauma-related things like abuse, um, neglect, um, physical, sexual, you know, uh, abuse. So there's a, there's a whole lot of things. It's not just something that's just given willy-nilly. I mean, there's a whole criteria that people need to kind of meet to be able to, uh, to, to have that that diagnosis. I think the other thing to, um, and I think you, you allude to this, is that there are what we refer to as our big T's, which are our big traumas, and mm. there are also what we refer to as our little T's, which are the, the little traumas that still have an impact on people. But again, they won't be anywhere um, meeting the criteria for things like, you know, PTSD, but nonetheless, they can compromise our capacity to live fulfilling lives. So just, um, and I'm happy to explain sometimes the difference. Yeah. Let me stop you there. Just can we explain 
the, the, the diagnostic threshold for trauma and PTSD. So first of all, what is PTSD? And what kind of yep. trauma do you have to have to start thinking about a diagnosis of PTSD? Yeah, okay. So your PTSD, as I mentioned before, tends to be the experiences of a life-changing event. What does PTSD event stand for? Post-traumatic stress disorder. Right, so yeah. post-traumatic okay. stress so, disorder, right. Yes. So that can be, um, so there's a couple of things that we need to bear in mind when we're talking about PTSD. So as I mentioned before, they're the things that have caused uh, an ability to not feel safe. Um, they're the things like your fires, your natural disasters, your you know, sexual assaults, physical assaults, armed robberies, holdups, um, your, your experiences where you felt that your life was actually in some sort of danger or you, ex, you know, ex, experienced extreme um, fear in response to your safety. So that the to symptoms me is critical. consistent. Oh, that well, that's to me exactly is absolutely right. critical. It's where you feel that your life is in danger and you, you're almost paralyzed by abject shock, horror, and despair. That's but a, an interesting point I'd like to make at this point is that instrumental violence is more likely to cause PTSD than accidental violence. So for instance, being involved in a natural disaster, I, I think, you know, I, I've read somewhere that the rates of PTSD post-exposure to natural disasters is maybe in the region of 10%. Whereas mm. exposure to instrumental violence like assault, rape, mm. you know, being held at gunpoint, the rates mm. of PTSD after those kind of experiences are higher in the, in the order of 50%. That's true, yes. Mm. So I interrupted your yep. flow there, sorry. No, 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 that's okay. Um, so I guess one of the things that we, when we're looking at the criteria for PTSD, it's around looking at the, um, the apprehend, like the absolute fear, the apprehension yeah. of re-experiencing the trauma. Um, yeah. The other things are things like the avoidance that's associated. Uh, we know that there's a, an impact on mood for PTSD. So there's lots of negative thoughts about self, um, you know, symptoms of being edgy and irritable. Um, easily aroused, so you know, becoming hyper aroused quite quickly. So uh, some of those things will just be um, a, a, a simple trauma. Uh, not a simple trauma, but there might be a one-off trauma that someone has experienced. Um, what about the so numbing? there's oh the the numbing is a is it often uh, during an during an assault or during something that is so harrowing. The psyche has this incredible ability to try to keep us safe by numbing, uh, completely dissociating. You know, I've mm. had clients who have experienced horrendous um, sexual assaults and they felt like they were out of their body. They felt like they were above themselves um, mm. or they felt like they were behind themselves. Essentially, it's, you know, it's in some ways the body's actually doing what it needs to do to keep people safe. And sometimes when we explain the symptoms of what is going on during those processes, it's, it reassures the person that their body's actually doing what they can to have kept them safe, yeah. uh, even though they get fearful during those symptoms, especially if people get the, the dissociation where sometimes they might feel like momentarily things around them don't feel real or they're out of their bodies, that can sometimes uh, be a big indicator in things like um, panic disorder because they fear that, oh, my gosh, I'm going to do something uncontrolled or I'm going to go crazy or do something like that. But it's actually the body's way of, um, un when we understand the symptoms, it's trying to keep the person safe. And for me, it's the, the dissociation and the numbing, which, if persisting, is one of the more 
poor prognosticators for, for the recovery from PTSD. I find that people who have more numbing tend to suffer more in the longer term. Is that something that you'd experience? Yes. Yes, yeah. because there's, there's uh, <clears throat> sometimes people will complain that there's no, um, there's no feeling of anything. <laughs> there's no, mm. there's just numbness. So therefore there's yeah. no, there's no feelings of happiness. <clears throat> there's no sense of being at all, ability to derive any joy. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I probably should also mention with, with trauma is that, you know, we can have a direct exposure, which is, you know, some of this, the um, examples I gave before, but people can also get a diagnosis of PTSD for something that they didn't actually experience personally. So indirect exposure can just be the constant, yeah. um, you know, hearing of traumatic stories. So people mm. who might work with victims of torture, um, those who work in the sexual assault um, areas, child protection, mm. Um, so, and our first responders uh, can yeah. all be people who can also experience trauma. Yeah. So we started this particular debate about asking the question, why have we changed from borderline to complex trauma? We, and we've now spoken a few moments on what uh, PTSD is, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. So that was the prototypical traumatic response disorder. And now we've got this new thing called complex trauma disorder, which is mm. the, the, the new version of borderline. So that, you know, Brian is the new black. What, what is complex trauma? And, um, you know, how different is that from the trauma associated with PTSD? So the complex trauma tends to be the stuff that's happened more in childhood and how it's affected interpersonal relationships and sense of, of safety and trust in the world. So if you think about a child who has experienced uh, being locked outside in the rain, uh, being locked inside in a cupboard, um, you know, had all of like, you know, capacity to know to know to tune into hunger and and know that there might food be might be available one minute and then there might be periods where there's no food um if you think about a child or a young person who perhaps has been exposed to a pedophile ring from a very very young age it's the impact that it's had on on the ability to feel safe from quite a long time and i think that's one of the one of the things that's really important is that the trust factor has often been compromised in a very mm. very early age whereas say for someone who gets ptsd when they're you know 25 mm. you'd like to hope that they have had a, the foundational platforms and the pillars that they've often needed have been stabilized and then they may have had some greater experience to call upon moments of feeling safe whereas um, in the experience of complex trauma, that's often never been a felt experience. So yeah. th there's been no, there's been no anchoring. There's been no mm. capacity just to kind of be. So it's, you can see how the the complex trauma for someone who's had multiple traumas, um, physical, sexual, um, emotional neglect, um, and all of those things starting from a very young age. You can see how that just can really lead to. Um, just the, the array of potential trauma in years and years and years to come, just from, you know, experiences. If they've got no solid sense of self, then going to school means they're likely to potentially doing things. Um, there's sometimes like there's this gift that keeps on giving. You know, you have a child who doesn't understand good boundaries because they've never had them in their home life. They yeah. go to school. They're, they're considered the wayward kid. 
Um, then they're yeah. all of a sudden terrorising animals or harming other kids. You can just see how the yeah. cycle and then the, the identity ends up so badly compromised. So what I'm hearing is that in complex trauma, we have a, not necessarily life-threatening one-off events. We have this, this, this process of exposure to chronic child abuse, child neglect, which then causes a, a pervasive change in, 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 in your psyche that then basically sets you up for a series of maladaptive responses as you get older. And that's in contradistinction to post-traumatic stress disorder, which usually involves a one-off, life-threatening, horrific event. Is that, is that fair to say? Is that, is that fair to identify the differences between the trauma of PTSD and the traumas of complex trauma disorder? Spot on. That is 100%. I could not have right. said it better myself. Well, I, 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 heard, I heard and learned from the best. So, <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking about trauma and we just, you know, let's go back to the big T's and the little T's. I think we understand what the big T's are. Or, or do we understand what the big T's are? Did you want to say yeah, something so, more about the big T's? So the big, yeah, the big T's are those ones where, you know, it could be family violence, it could be um, uh, <clears throat> spousal abuse. Um, and as I said, I mentioned all of the other symptoms that, that, or, you know, experiences that could constitute that. So your little T's are, okay, so examples of little T's might be where somebody's giving a presentation in perhaps grade three or grade four at school and then some kids start you know skylarking around in the class they start you know <laughs> elbowing their peers and they start giggling and you know mucking around and perhaps the teacher doesn't intervene and in fact also has a giggle as well so as much as it's not going to threaten their life what that will do is then uh, potentially leave them with a belief system oh well last time I went to go do a presentation at school I got laughed at um, people thought that I was boring um, mm. and people mocked me so little and it, it doesn't necessarily you know sometimes there can be various experiences of that um, little t's could be something like um, sports uh, you know when people do uh, they get house they become like a house captain and then they pick different participants to get on the soccer team or to get on the netball team. Mm. And people might be picking, you know, there might be a, a, um, a class where there's a division of two teams and it's always the person who gets picked last because perhaps they, they're not good with physical sport. Um, so it's not uncommon that that sort of thing can lead to, you know, the constant experience of feeling less than, the constant mm. experience of feeling um, invalidated, not good enough not not uh, picked or not deemed as being worthy. So it's more about a lack of sensitivity and empathy on the part of carers and peers. Would that be fair yeah, to say? Yeah, and yeah, and I guess you know, and and young people just don't have that that capacity to sometimes think bigger than that. They don't have the mm. parts of their brain to understand. You know, if they're too busy picking their teams because they want to win, that's their that's their motivator their motivator mm. might not necessarily be about sitting there thinking about, well, wait a minute, what's the poor kid who's continually not being picked uh, for yeah. certain um, sporting events? They're, 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 they're just not thinking that way. It's not because they're being malicious. So their, their focus I'm, is on something else. I'm veering off onto a tangent here, but is it, is it fair to say to schools that, that, that you cannot have the motivation of winning because, you know, life is competitive? 
You know? I wouldn't say that that's the case. Um, that's just one example. Like it's not a, it's not a, a, a you know, that's you what know, people are, are driven by. Nobody, no, not you know, we don't live in a society where everyone attends school gets an A grade for their uh, for their tests. You know, we, we do live in a in a world where there is distinction made on 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 ability and merit. So I mean, I know I'm playing devil's advocate here, but is the identification of the inability to do something a trauma? And if so, surely you just need to get used to it, live it up, suck it up. I think, look, I think that, interestingly, when we, we talk about PTSD, when we talk about complex trauma, some of the, the schemas that tend to, or some of the belief systems that tend to happen when people have experienced trauma are things like um, loss of control, loss of feeling safe, um, perceptions of responsibility, I should have done something different, but I didn't, yeah. um, perceptions of, as I said, control and choice. Sometimes... As I, th I mentioned before, sometimes we have core schemas and I think what happens when we've got the example of the kids not getting picked at school, it reinforces some of those core beliefs and those schemas exactly. that are already there. It's the vulnerability, isn't it? You have a yeah. child who's vulnerable yeah. and then gets a, a slight knock and that child is rendered wounded, whereas the same knock for a child that grew up in a happy, stable household would just laugh it off and brush it off and the mother would say, don't worry, son, you're good at something else. That's correct. Yeah, for That's me, it's exactly the vulnerability right. diathesis. Yes, yes, yes. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. So we've talked about the, the little T's. We've talked about the big T's. We've talked about the difference between acute post-traumatic stress disorder and complex trauma disorder. And we started this conversation by discussing what trauma is in terms of you know, childhood experiences. We've barely scratched the surface, but can you give one message of hope before we wrap things up? One message of hope to people watching about how to deal with trauma. Okay, so one of the, there's a couple of techniques that, um, that I use. So one is EMDR, uh, the other one is emotional freedom technique, which is tapping. Mm -hmm. uh, the, but the biggest thing to, that I find for uh, people who experience trauma is to be able to understand the symptoms. So often um, what, what tends to happen is the, because people end up going, becoming so hyper aroused or, you know, to, some of the symptoms of, of trauma can be hypo aroused. So we go into that numbed, um, disconnected, almost falling asleep, or we can go the opposite where we're, um, you know, really highly anxious, highly strung. Uh, so a lot of it is psychoeducation. A lot of, uh, a lot of, I'm not saying people's symptoms settle down but when people start to understand what's even going on in their bodies that's like you know 101 for me so that people have an understanding of you know that they don't feel like their bodies or they're, they're getting hijacked by their brain so when we can talk about things like understanding the role of the flight flight freeze response um, the triggering of like you know parts of the brain um, the amygdala all of that sort of stuff and how we can try to uh, understand that how we bring on board the other parts of our thinking. So we need to realise that with, with trauma, it's a false alarm. So an example that I sometimes use for clients is people might be familiar with a, um, what do you call it, a sensor light outside. And we want the sensor light to turn on when we pull up in the dark and we turn our, you know, we want to fumble around for our keys. We want to make sure that the sensor light turns on as we're trying to find keys to get in the door. But what we don't want to be doing is lying in bed and having the sensor light turning on and off 
when it doesn't need to because perhaps the mouse scamp has passed or a possum goes across the power pole. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I try to explain um, the aspects of the brain. We want the brain to be working when it needs to. Uh, so a lot of the techniques that I tend to do are things like grounding, a lot of um, understanding that it's about uh, awakening certain parts of the brain. So whenever we can get into what we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we smell, what we taste, we're disconnecting with parts of the brain that are connected to the trauma response and the anxiety flight flight response. And so the more that we can start to shift when we start to get those feelings of, oh my gosh, it's happening again. You know, we said one of the symptoms is that re-experiencing, which triggers people. But when we can start to bring on parts of the brain that go, no, this is a false alarm, uh, I'm actually safe, um, there's different techniques that we use to reinstall and, and to make sure that people actually feel safer again and that they can inhabit their bodies without feeling like they're, they're getting hijacked all the time. So there is hope. Marie, thank you so Absolutely. much for your pearls of wisdom as usual. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. That's it for today's MedHeads. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and we look forward to your joining with us again soon.